The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life this week. Uh, we have a, a just a phenomenal uh, and great show uh, for you today that I, that I hope... Uh, one of the things I do like to do on Museum Life is to speak honestly and openly about some of the challenges uh, in our field. And I think that this is one area that we don't uh, really talk enough about publicly. Uh, and that is the reality of exhibition designers and exhibition design in, in our museums today. There has, is, uh, has been a, for the last uh certainly since in my uh, my career over the last uh, 20 years has been a shift from relying on uh, large in-house uh, teams to develop exhibitions to using more uh, commercial design firms uh, there are as we know several design firms here in the US and and throughout the world that are almost 100% focused on uh, museum exhibitions and I think the question arises what have we gained and possibly what have we lost in terms of having this sort of in-house outhouse uh, discussions and and I was really reminded of this uh, last month here in Washington I double booked myself on two simultaneous conferences that were happening in Washington DC and they were only one metro stop away one was uh, talking with uh, uh, investigators who have National Science Foundation grants, uh, developing exhibitions and programs, and of course evaluating, uh, evaluating those exhibitions and programs, and uh, very, very fascinating work coming out of that group. I also was at the SEGD conference, Exhibition and Experience Design Workshop, in fact, where I first met our guest today. And also, very interesting work, very great ideas talking about exhibition design. And I thought, wouldn't it have been wonderful if the two groups could have gotten together? So, with that, um, 
I persuaded our guest today, Tim McNeil, to come on the show and talk about some of these topics with us. Tim is the perfect person to do this because he actually has a foot in all aspects of museum exhibition design. He is a professor at UC Davis in the Department of Design. He is also the director of the UC Davis Design Museum, and he is a principal in a commercial design firm called Munitz McNeil, uh, where they consider themselves a multidisciplinary design and research practice in Los Angeles. Uh, Tim has developed many museum exhibitions and he has been recognized for design excellence by the Society for Environmental Graphic Design as well as the American Alliance for Museums and uh, several others. So Tim, welcome to the show today. It is just a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Carol. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to be on the show. Tim, let's just uh, get right into it. You know, one of the questions that you and I have been talking about as we've prepared for this discussion is, you know, does the current commercial exhibition design system really isolate or even stifle our most visionary and creative uh, design minds? Well, I think it works both ways. Um, you know, having the ability to, um, you know, maybe uh, look at exhibition design uh, is a is a highly creative, highly creative field, and you know, having space uh, to design things and having the ability to work with different people to generate lots of interesting ideas, uh, having the you know sort of sense of being able to re-delve into lots of different topics. Designers thrive on that kind of, um, you know, that kind of energy, that kind of content. Um, so I feel that, you know, there is, a, it's a push and pull in the field at the moment where there are some is excellent work going on, both clearly in in-house design departments as much as there is with contract firms or outside. And there's always this little bit of a, tension between those two areas where the external design firms, those who are brought in, are often you know, brought in and favored because they bring in new ideas, they may be bringing a fresh energy, they're also you know, potentially or usually brought in because there is no design staff or at least you know, the design staff that are at a museum are not capable of necessarily handling a particular project because of the volume of work. Um, so they tend to, you know, be brought in to bring in new ideas and to move things forward or because that's part of very much the programming at a museum too is to bring in new ideas and bring in new people to sort of liven things and keep things going. Yeah, on the other hand, you know, the in-house design departments of which many museums, most of the larger museums have, uh, are also providing a very valuable role in the sense of, continuity within the museum in terms of how exhibitions are designed. They're building relationships with the staff, who they'll work with, with the exhibition staff and the other museum staff, which is important too. Uh, they're providing, you know, there's a depth there to that relationship between the two and you know, how um, those, you know, as a result, projects tend to be maybe well, more, more well thought through or there's also um, a sense that they um, maybe understand the museum better because they're more vested 
in, in as, a, as, a, as a result. And I think we've seen that, you know, the trend's gone back and forth between having very dominant in-house design departments. And I think we've moved away a lot from that, mainly because of um, for financial issues or because museums can't afford to support those kind of design departments any longer and, and sort of to outsource much more um, within the field. And there are many more exhibition design firms out there than there ever were before as well. It's, you know, the exhibition design field has become a very global one. Um, I can't think there are many uh, commercial exhibition design firms, those who are working, you know, as contract design firms that aren't doing projects all over the world or at least have one project that's international. Uh, and that's a big shift in the field as well. You know, 20 years ago, it was much more nationally based. You know, that that's where, you know, Design firms within the U.S. would typically do U.S. museums, but that has that has changed somewhat significantly. Yes, the uh, I, I think I want to get get back uh, to a couple of things that you said, but I think one of them is another trend that is uh, very interesting. Uh, I know we're both involved in it, and that is the exporting of sort of Western ideas about what a museum is and, and how a museum functions, and, and even to the process of exhibition design that we're exporting uh, throughout the world, uh, particularly in areas that uh, perhaps have not had so many uh, museums. And, you know, it seems to me that, that uh, what you describe as sort of the you know the perfect reasons to bring in external people uh, to as you say liven things up uh, uh, just to help with the workload uh, as well as as um, you know just sort of keep uh, new ideas flowing seems to be the, the you know the optimal um, but you and I both know that in practice, it doesn't always work out that way, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I think we would be disingenuous if we if we didn't say that uh, at conferences when we get together or when we're seeing our colleagues and friends uh, that that inevitably uh, design firms sometimes turn to their war stories about projects that didn't quite work out or clients that were frustrating to work with, and of course museum uh, exhibition staff and education staff have their their own side to that story as well. So I'm wondering, you know, what what fuels that frustration uh, because everyone should be working on the same team uh, to be doing delightful and wonderful work for our visitors and our communities. And this this tension can sometimes just uh, make everyone's life pretty miserable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, I've been fortunate enough to to work in both capacities and working both as an in-house uh, museum designer, which I worked at the the Getty Museum in Los Angeles for fifteen years, and so I really cut my teeth on exhibitions in that uh, in that role, and then also as a principal of a design firm, being brought in externally to work on exhibitions as well. Um, the tension that's there, uh, I think if you look at the external design firm being brought in, you know, it's a business. Um, you know, those firms are having to look at their bottom line. They're having to um, estimate the best they can what a project will take. And, 
exhibitions are incredibly difficult things to quantify in terms of time <laughs> commitment because any kind of creative process where you're having to take content, uh, digest it, filter it, um, work through the design process to a final outcome, which you then need to also typically shepherd through to construction and installation. Trying to estimate what that will really take or what that involves is incredibly difficult to do in terms of time. Also because, you know, as museum professionals, we are very um, vested in our work. We care passionately about it. As a result, we may tend to uh, take a long time to think things through. Uh, we want to make sure we get them right. Uh, we, want, we put a lot of demands on the exhibition designer, I suppose, in many ways, of potentially changing course midway through, having a different idea, testing things out. There's a lot of, we want to get things to a certain place and do it the right way. And there's a lot of complexity to putting an exhibition together. And I liken it to, you know, it's, it's more complex almost, you know, rather than putting on a stage show or, or a theater design or putting on a performance, for instance. But you're dealing with, with people who are physically interacting with that space, who are touching, handling, doing things in that space. Hence, the design of that space has to really work at a very high level. Plus, the exhibition design field is one of the most transdisciplinary design fields that I can think of, where it involves architecture, it involves graphics and graph design, it's a bit of interior design, it's got clearly elements of industrial design to it as well, New media design and digital technology, of course, is a huge component in every exhibition now. Plus the uh, you know, knowledge of materials, construction, fabrication, and build-out. So saying that, exhibition design firms, to try and get back to your question, have a lot to take on, a lot to do. And as a result, they have a very specific way they like to work to make sure that things go fairly seamlessly in their minds to make sure that they can get things done in a timely way and, you know, you know, pay and keep things, keep their staff, you know, who they have to support, make sure that the fees they're charging work out. So those external pressures, I think, don't often always sit well with the way museums operate because, as I mentioned before, the museum process tends to be a much more thoughtful and you know, t the time frames are quite long for many exhibition planning processes too, not always, but many times. And compare that to an in-house design team where, you know, granted, they have probably an amazing amount of work to do and lots of exhibitions to, to deal with or, or things to do. But there's a sense of, oh, well, we can take a little bit more time with it because we'll pick it up somewhere else or there's, there's more latitude for spending more time on one project and less on another. There's that kind of flexibility. And I think the benefits of that for um, museum teams who are building exhibitions is that they can kind of gauge that scope of work and begin to... Um, finesse it or fine-tune it to make sure that they can get everything done the way they want to do it. Whereas with an outside design firm, they're in to do what they need to do. Once they're completed, they're away and off they go. And you may never work with them again if you had a bad experience, or you may indeed build a good relationship with them. And, you know, sometimes that's the best way of doing it is, you know, working with a design firm who you trust and you like, and you like the working process. And once 
everyone gets familiar with each other, then maybe that's a good way to continue working with them. Of course, then that doesn't do much for what we talked about earlier in terms of bringing in new ideas, because you may get a little bit of the same thing each time. And also, just in terms of how exhibitions are designed, there's a huge variety to how we work within museums. And I meet a lot of exhibition designers and people who, well, who call themselves exhibition designers. And I think that's wonderful that we have this huge spectrum of people who slot themselves into that description. But we come from so many different backgrounds. Some of us are purely design trained within whether it's architecture or graphic design or, or industrial design. Some people come in much more from the other end of the spectrum from a sort of more curatorial side of you know, museum planning or museum or, or exhibition development. People come from theater design. People come from all sorts of different inroads into it. So it's a very, um, it's a, a difficult discipline to kind of um, contain and, and also um, you know, describe or, or to kind of lock down. Um, for that reason, you know, there's, depending on the type of exhibition too, there are uh, certain designers or design firms that may be more suited to it because of the, the work that they've done. So the tension gets, comes really from maybe more of the, um, you know, this sense of, of, of maybe a misunderstanding in the process of what everyone's uh, trying to come up with or the fact that certain you know, design firms are coming in um, and they have to be very realistic about what they can do within the time frame and maybe can't be you can't have the luxury maybe as you might have with an in-house design department spending a lot more time on things although I would say that in-house design departments are probably if they're listening to this are saying hey, hey wait a minute we have way <laughs> too much to do there's no way we have luxury for anything I mean, I, I was thinking back to when I worked. At, it was working in a, you know, an exhibition design department within a museum. It's constant, you know, you're, just like with any project. It's you never really ever have a moment of downtime. It's just one project after another, or several projects at the same time, and you're really having to be quite disciplined about how, which ones you need to focus on at which time to make sure they're all moving forward, you know, the, to, to completion and on the right schedule. Yes, um, I, I think those are all those are all excellent points. I, I think no matter who, where we are in the spectrum of museum work, uh, when we are running so fast to try to keep up, that is usually the the worst time to try to want to do something new or be creative. Right. I mean, we just, you know, we burn out on just getting the emails and the meetings, and that's true whether you're an exhibit designer uh, or whether you're the, uh, the, the, the director of the museum. It seems to me, too, that while... Some museums have the luxury of doing lots of new exhibitions, uh, lots of, of renovations and changes, and perhaps have that luxury of continuing to work with a design firm that they like and they trust and they've built those uh, personal relationships. Many museums are actually, they have one time to do their big 
renovation or their big change. It's, you know, uh, uh, maybe once every 10 years they have that opportunity. And I think that those are, are particularly challenging because there's so much additional pressure put on the exhibition. You know, right. you only have right. one, one time to make that good first impression. And if you've never worked with an out outside design firm you know I don't think there are a lot of uh, museum groups that that often know some of the questions to ask yeah. you know other than well can you do this yeah you look great and we <laughs> love what you did for this institution even though it has nothing to do with our institution and uh, so so you're hired and it's only about halfway through the project sometimes does every everyone realize that maybe this wasn't the the perfect perfect match um, we are going to have to take a short break with that, uh, so we will come back and I will let Tim uh, respond to some of the things I said and also uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what working with external design firms are doing in terms of perhaps homogenizing museum experiences. So please stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. Remember, you can always uh, send me a tweet uh, at MuseWrite. Uh, let me know what you're thinking about and perhaps uh, if you have a question for Tim. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bosser. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossard, and I'm here with Tim McNeil. We're talking about the realities of the exhibition design process uh, and um, uh, the exhibition design field. And right before the break, I sort of teed Tim up to uh, perhaps be a little more controversial. There, There is a concern sometimes that with the proliferation of external exhibition design, design firms and the trend for museums to choose these firms uh, and and as Tim had said earlier who are truly working internationally that uh, there there could be a homogenization that you go into a museum um, whether whether it's an art museum or a science museum or a natural history museum and uh, I don't know about you Tim but I can often tell who the exhibit designer was based on the design I see. And that's, I'm not saying that that's a negative thing, but I'm wondering if, you know, if you do something well in one spot and it works, why not do it someplace else? That would seem to be a good business model, but does that um, work against a museum field that needs to be doing, being more responsive to their individual communities and needs. Right. I, li- I like that, Carol, that you, you can spot the exhibition. I play that game all the time <laughs> when I walk into an exhibition or, or a, a new museum thinking, okay, if I don't know who's designed this, can I guess who it, who it is? I mean, there are, you know, we, we talked about how many exhibition design firms there are. I mean, it is a, still a pretty limited field. I mean, it's a small field. Um, everyone tends to know each other. Everyone tends to know what everyone, everyone's up to and what works out there. So it is often quite uh, easy to spot who has worked, worked on what just through the, the look and the, and, the, and the way the design has been, has been carried out and, and implemented. Um, yes, I think this idea of... of of certain firms relying on uh, a, a, pro- a process or rather a design look or an approach that they know works and, and trotting out time and time again is very very much a product of, you know, again, a business model of, well, you know, we did this before, we know it works, we'll retweak it and dress it up in a different way and we'll, we'll put it into another project we might be working on. And I think that that's the reality that we're all faced of, whether you're working in an in-house design, exhibition design team or, or an external design team. You're, you're looking at how you can save time. You're looking at how you can build on what you may have done before and improve it. And if you've done something that you know works well, you may want to you know, reuse that. Indeed, if, if we think about how exhibition design firms who may be putting a project pitch or bidding for um, an exhibition project or a a museum um, renovation, for instance. How do we select those design firms? Uh, The typical process follows one that we also see in architecture and other design disciplines, which is maybe to 
put a RFP out there, um, a request for proposal of what the project is. We want to then receive um, certain bids back or, or proposals from different design firms, which get vetted. And the key part that tends to be not only um, how we make that decision is clearly based on reputation or if we feel we can work well with that design team. It's very much about personality and about who's a good fit. But we look at the work, the creative output of that exhibition design firm. We look at the projects they've worked on in the past, and it's a very visual reaction in many ways. Like, oh, I really like the work they did for this museum, or I really like the exhibition they did for this. We want some of that for our museum. So I think in some ways, the process of how we select exhibition design firms is a factor in this, you know, homogenization that you're talking about in terms of getting the same thing, that we're, as clients, selecting exhibition design firms, we're looking at what's out there and liking certain things and saying, well, we really like what we saw at this. Can we have some of that at our institution? So there's maybe some of that at play, too, where design firms are selling themselves on a certain look or a certain style um, that they have crafted that belongs to them. And I I think that's hard to ignore or get away from. I mean, as much as, as I always get into this debate about the differences between, you know, say art and design, that's a whole other discussion, but design is still of an element of the artist in them. They're still creative people who want to make a statement at some level. Whether, and of course, they're solving problems, they're trying to, you know, communicate things clearly or in case of an exhibition um, create a device a space that functions well and works well in terms of engaging the audiences for that exhibition also displaying how to display the objects to their best and communicate information around them but ultimately they also want and I'm I think I'm speaking for the profession here to put their mark on it in some way creatively in a creative way that says you know this is us this is me this is uh you know, the, and that's sometimes where we can also see this tension where the exhibition designer may let that need to be, to make a statement override the delivery of the content or what might be best for the exhibition. So, you know, I, I feel that there's this element of, again, style coming into play here with certain designers or design firms that want to put their mark on things and that may lead to this this sort of look of all being the same as well or things looking very similar i have to say that you know i'm interested in those you know looking out there at those design firms who are trying to break that um, um i w- maybe we'll get to this in a little bit but in in april of this year um, I co-organized a conference in London on exhibition design, one of the first um, to happen sort of on an international stage, to try and bring exhibitions desi- designers together to talk about some of the uh, burning issues within our field. And one of the selection processes for who we wanted to present at that conference, it was called um, Re-envisioning Envisioning Exhibition Design, and the sub-theme was called Chaos at the Museum. Um, was how to bring in exhibition designers who we felt were doing things differently, who were challenging the usual way of putting exhibitions together, who were questioning the 
the way things have been maybe typically done, who are trying out uh, new, new approaches. And, you know, that's, you know, whether or not we were successful in that, you know, um, I feel we were, but, you know, that, that's, that's debatable. But bringing in, you know, the, these, these, a lot of designers, and the sort of criteria for that was really those who were maybe being more experimental and not being afraid to do things a little bit differently um, and taking some risks. But it was hard to find, you know, a lot of projects that really fit that bill. And a lot of it was because, you know, it's a risk to maybe push the design of something in a new direction into something that um, maybe engages audiences in a much, in a very different way, in a much more highly participatory way, or, you know, you know, things could go wrong, you know, that things may not work out quite as you planned. And taking that risk, you know, maybe often stifles the um, exhibition design process, because if the museum team or the exhibition team we're working with it aren't prepared to get on board with that, then, yeah, you may get delivered a very, um, a solution that you, you know, is pretty safe that you've seen before, that we know works and, you know, that's the main thing that matters. I mean, again, depends on the type of exhibition and how long it's got to be installed for, whether it's a temporary exhibition for a few months or whether it's a permanent exhibition for a few years. Um, some exhibitions will clearly demand a much more um, sort of um, a look that is more timeless, should we say. And therefore, you may resort to safer solutions or things that you feel you've tried before and you know work. And you don't want to take the, the risk or the liability of that not happening. And clearly, there's another factor, too, for external contract exhibition design firms who are on, you know, obligated to deliver a product that will fulfill the client's needs. And often that's one that will last, you know, a long time and, you know, that is made of, a, of materials and made in a way that it can handle the day-to-day -day use of, you know, a large visitorship. Uh, and that's part of their obligation to make sure that works because if it doesn't, you know, either the design firm or the, whoever was brought in to fabricate and build out that exhibition space will be liable to have to come back time and time again and make those upgrades or make those improvements. So there's maybe some of the very pragmatic issues of, you know, that, that leads to some, you know, fairly simple and frankly, maybe, you know, tried and tested solutions that maybe not as excited as, uh, as some other ones are. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the concept of risk. Uh, on, on this program, and uh, we've talked about uh, museums are innately risk averse. Mm -hmm. uh, either uh, partly, I think that's the uh, uh, the nature of our governance structure. Uh, Laura Roberts uh, and others have talked about that. Uh, boards are often. Uh, brought on and they, the institution has to be successful, uh, but maybe the institution hasn't identified exactly what success means and how much risk that they can take. Uh, I have sat on many, many um, uh, RFP response teams where the first question being asked is, well, so will it work? Will it be successful? Right. And, uh, and that would tend to make any of us uh, focus on those things that we know worked in Topeka uh, or worked uh, uh, on another one of our, 
of our projects. It seems to me as well that the RFP process itself, which as you said, comes from the architecture engineering world and museums have now uh, been, some of them have been forced to do it because of government uh, requirements. Some just feel that it's, you know, it's a good practice. Uh, But it does, you know, particularly in this day and age where there are fewer museums and more design firms, uh, the cast of thousands will respond to almost any RFP that is put uh, out on the street. And that's tough for the institution and I to make those decisions, and I would think it would be very tough for those firms that are trying to do things a little differently to rise to the top. Right, right. No, exactly. It's um, that's always the challenge, and you know, most uh, I, I would say I'm I'm speaking for most exhibition design firms and saying that there are projects that you know are the more bread and butter projects, those that you will do. Because you know they're the ones that you can play it fairly safe, and you'll do things the way you've always done them. And then there's the occasional project that come along that you go, "Wow, okay, here's a moment that I can really make a difference or do something differently." And you couldn't do that for every project because it's just not feasible to think that way. I mean, as much as you could would want to, there are you have to rely on your experience and things you've done before to. To, to guide you along. I mean, one, one thing I wanted to, to say was that it's always, it's interesting to me with, des, I mean, you know, designers, okay, within museums. I was trying to think, are there other, the many other um, positions within the museum where, because a lot of designers that I've met with, who work in museums have come into it through various routes. But they've also left and gone on to other things, too. Some people see museums as a stop on the path, their career path. Many people, many designers stick with it, and that's their career. And I think that that says a lot about the design profession, that there are a lot of opportunities, and it's a field that has many subsets to it. Um, and an exhibition design is just one of, of a, t- a range of, of career opportunities. So... Is there a, I was trying to think, is there a lack of maybe in, of getting vested in the museum for some designers who feel like, well, this is just, you know, I'll move on to something else if this doesn't work out. Whereas for many museum professionals, they don't have that same opportunity necessarily um, because you choose museums as a career path and, you know, that's, that really is your career because you become very specialized in a certain area. And I think designers tend to have this little bit of a removed feeling that they, okay, well, you know, this is great, but there's maybe something else I could do afterwards. Or I could move on to a different, you know, area. And I don't know if that has anything to do with some of the tension that's within museums and, design, and teams as well, where there's, um, you know, a, a maybe feeling that designers feel like they're always a little bit different or they're working in a different way. Um, and so that's, you know, could have um, some, you know, implications in terms of how the process may or may, may, or may not work um, to some degree. That's an interesting observation, and I had never really thought about it in 
in that way. Uh, I guess the only other tension, the only other group that might uh, possibly fall into that are uh, academic uh, research scientists who may also have a have a curatorial position in the museum, but their you know their bread and butter really and allegiance is is to their research project that may be through a university. Yeah, and uh, you know I think I think that there's that's a, a real point. I mean, if you if you come in to be a museum director or uh, uh, someone who is involved in programming or even evaluation, you are probably there uh, to stay in the museum. Uh, so, so that I. I want to uh, think about that a little bit more. Yeah, while yeah. we while we go on our next break, okay. and um, so we'll do that. Uh, I'll give you a chance uh, to respond a little bit more, Tim, because I, I think that this is very interesting, particularly also this area of communication. And I think we're getting down to that that topic. How how do these various groups of people communicate and how do designers communicate their craft Mm -hmm. Uh, we will be back uh, with Tim, Uh, let him speak in just a, a couple of minutes, you're listening to Carol Bossert, this is Museum Life back in a moment Streaming live the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. 
to reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard, and I'm with Tim McNeil. And during the break, uh, Tim and I were continuing the the uh, discussion a little bit. And Tim, you made a really interesting uh, observation about the uh, the choices that exhibit designers, museum exhibit designers, uh, sometimes have to make in terms of even what conferences they they attend. Could you talk? Uh, uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, so, in turn, I was thinking about this, you know, how designers slot into the, uh, mu- the, the museum field and, and their relationships with other museum professionals. And there's always a little bit of a disconnect um, for designers in the sense that there are a lot of um, professional conferences or workshops or events around design. Um, Carol, you mentioned at the beginning the Society for Experiential Design, SEGD, for example, who put on design events or conferences, and the focus is very much about design, whether it's you know for exhibitions within museums or a whole range of other um, areas as well or other environments. And then there are you know the, the museum conferences, um, which were are you familiar with whether those are state museum conferences or national ones, such as the American Alliance of Museums? How I don't know many designers who go to the museum conferences. They um, tend to sure if it if there's something of interest um, on the list of sessions, but typically they're more drawn to going to the specialized design conferences because that's kind of maybe more familiar or maybe where they feel they're going to gain more in terms of, you know, um, inf- ideas, information, and, and inspiration from those those types of things. I think that creates a little bit of, uh, you know, this, just of which world uh, should the designer be in, you know. And design is a, is a, as I mentioned earlier, is a vast profession with many opportunities within it. And, you know, I teach both undergraduate and graduate students exhibition design, you know, a handful of those will become exhibition designers. Um, uh, I'm not teaching uh, at a graduate level a lot of students, but those that do, I mean, it's it's a very quite a finite field in that way. And you know, there are many other opportunities or distractions and other career paths that designers have or or may want to take. And I think that um, you know, again, is maybe why the appeal. There's always this. You know, as a designer, which where do you want to work? Do you want to work within the institution, within the museum, within the organization, and be part of the in-house team? Or if you're working for an exhibition design firm who's been brought in, you're maybe feeling more connected to that design world because that's all that firm does, or it's very much their focus, um, and their you know that you know that that may be maybe more appealing on, on that level as well. You know, one of the uh, the the results of that, I and it's something that that I have I have perceived as well. In in some of the 
conferences that I attend, uh, looking at uh, evaluation, uh, looking at uh, visitor studies and the psychology of visitation, uh, the, the, the designer's voice is often not there. Mm-hmm. And you know, evaluation or any kind of testing is only as valuable as the questions that are being asked. And I sometimes wonder if that is an area where, it, again, we tend to talk to ourselves. If we are interested in visitor evaluation or, or visitor studies, we talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the designer isn't, isn't talking to them. Uh, one of the biggest you know trends right now, and Nina Simon is uh, is doing some some really interesting work in in this regard at her institution, is involving visitors in the development of the exhibition. I mean, uh, uh, Jasper Visser talked about that a little bit, uh, and I'm I'm wondering is is that kind of real audience participation, not just you know rubber stamping, but real audience participation where you're not quite sure where it's going to end up is is that just too messy for designers <laughs> uh, yeah in some ways i think it is i think what nina simon's doing for instance with and and you see it to some degree at the exploratorium in san francisco and many other science museums who are less interested in the polished finished design the more interested in how can they um, create an exhibition that can be nimble and can evolve and change and respond to um, the audience who's using it or visiting it and who also can really participate in it at a very high level. The designers like to control things. They, you know, there's a sense of wanting to craft a space or an environment or a series of exhibits and, and there's a level or a standard that uh, designers want to get that to and that doesn't necessarily fit well with high visitor participation where you're allowing visitors to change all of that. And I think we're seeing that um, tension or that conflict happening to some degree within museums now, of course, where we're trying to create more participatory experiences. But the downside of that is you lose control. And it's not just designers who are um, potentially so a little uncomfortable with that, but of course curators and other museum professionals as well. You know, letting go and, and accepting that what you may have created is going to get messed up or is going to change. I think, yeah, it's inherently part of the you know, design psyche that you want to, it's about perfection, it's about craft. You're taught that early on in design school that you're creating things that are, you know, Iterative that you work through, that you perfect, that you get to a point of perfection or the best it can be. And you kind of want to leave it, don't want anyone to touch it once it comes to that point. And of course, that doesn't work very well within an exhibition where you want it to be all about touch or you want it to be about participation or you want it to be about change. Interestingly, what, say, Nina Simon's doing, I always think it's sort of the anti-design, where it's not design, isn't, it's thought of in a different way. It's, it's how do you design for participation and create interesting, engaging, um, you know, um, exhibition components that people can react and, and shape and change. It's not about what it really looks like in the end. It's about how it's going to evolve. And even the 
thought of what things are made of. You know, it's they were much more temporary. They're much more fleeting. They're less permanent. They're less finished and polished. There's a, a, a different, it's a very different thing, way of thinking. And I think that is difficult for many design designers and design firms to take on. And, you know, I've, that came up at the conference, as I mentioned earlier in London, that there, was, there were a couple of conversations I had with designers there who said, yeah, I, I find it hard to design these kind of spaces that have to be highly participatory because, you know, I, I don't want to get things, I don't like things to get messed up. This doesn't come naturally to me. <laughs> you know, I want to be able to sort of control. And I, I, I think that's an, an issue that I'm sure many working in the museum field can relate to working with designers and particularly with architects too if they worked on a new building or on a, a renovation is this idea of that is the architect design wanting to control it and not let things you know they want it their way and they want it to all look great at the end you know and and the, this high level of participation challenges that in a, in a way but in a really fascinating way in my mind because it puts a new a new twist on what does What's the role of design in shaping that exhibition? If it's about encouraging participation at a different level of engagement that isn't so much about creating a polished, beautiful-looking thing, then that's a, a new and exciting way of thinking about how design uh, plays a role. Um, yes. Not afraid it, of it. I'm, I think it's a wonderful thing, actually. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, glad, I, I'm glad you said that last piece uh, because, I, I, you know... I've been uh, sort of this is this interview is on the heels of of several interviews I have I have done with uh, uh, social media experts uh, uh, media developers uh, you know looking at this sort of brave new world and it seems to me that that their that mantra is given the world we live in today that you know with with the uh, with the internet uh, with our phones in our pockets with the way we communicate as as a as a culture that museums doing business as usual you know that's in the largest sense and perhaps even you know exhibition designers doing business as usual with the finished product uh, just isn't sustainable in this environment anymore right and on a and then getting back to our first kind of conversation about you know, what's gained and what's lost of having both outsourced design and in-house design, maybe there's one of the key areas where if you are developing exhibitions that have to evolve or want to, you know, change and respond to the audiences, and you know, through participation, then having an external design team may make that quite difficult to do because you can't kind of change it and be on top of it as it progresses through its, its, its run as an exhibition. And that's where an in-house team would clearly have be advantageous um, of being able to sort of work with the rest of the exhibition team to keep that moving forward and change it and adapt it as, as, as it's needed as well. You know, the, that idea of bringing somebody in, as you mentioned, who, who granted probably does a fantastic job and delivers a final product, but then they walk away unless you're contracted with them to come in and keep revisiting it and changing it which often is not not the preferred way of doing things because of cost more than anything else 
That's that's very interesting, and that may be where uh, some of these exhibition design meetings uh, might be able to play an interesting role. Uh, I'm still looking for that museum conference that brings together uh, all of the groups that are interested in creating really great experiences for their visitors to have that kind of honest uh, honest discussion. Uh, and uh, so, are you planning? another uh, exhibition design conference in the near future? Yes. I mean, the, the idea behind the re-envisioning exhibition design um, summits is to do them every two, three years. And the, the, the real um, idea behind it is to bring together not just professionals, but also um, people in academia and also students. So there's a real discussion between all of those um, groups and that they are often, which sometimes happens, segmented out. That you get this, you know, dialogue together. And you know, when we created the the summit series, you know, it was in somewhat a reaction to what I'd been hearing from the design community, the exhibition design community, is that there's no forum for us to talk about what we want, what we're doing. Um, it's limited within the avenues that are out there. You know, we want a place to go where we can meet other designers and we can talk about our profession and, and advance our field because exhibition design is a pretty young field compared to other design disciplines, particularly architecture. Um, it's still evolving. There's very little being really written about it in a critical way. Um, so one of the key components of the summit was also a PhD symposium where it's great to hear research going on in the field as well about what is exhibition design, you know, what's its role in the future, um, where is it going, what does it include, because, you know, as part of what I'm very interested in in my research is how, what's, what do we mean by exhibition, this term, this, that when it's not, it's no longer in a museum, it's in all, in all sorts of environments, in all sorts of places, and how exhibitions can happen anywhere. And what does that really mean? What's the what is the definition of an exhibition space? And and what and if it is, is it a place where we're communicating stories and information and objects, or is it something very different from that? Well, those are excellent questions of for us to all ponder, and I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there for today. Uh, but I look forward to having you back on the show, Tim, perhaps after your next summit. Uh, I think that there is still a lot of discussion uh, to be had, and as, as you've said, this is an exciting time in museums, and it's an, an exciting time to be an exhibition designer. So thank you so much for your insights today. It has been a real pleasure. You're welcome, Carol. It's been been great to, to, to have the invitation to talk about this, and I'd love to talk about it further. Great. Wonderful. Well, we will be back next week. My guest will be Nancy Proctor, uh, talking about, uh, again, uh, what the world of social media means to museums in terms of their community and who is that community when we can reach the world. So stay tuned. I'll be back next week. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? 
Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. 